All right, we've been in this journey through the book of Philippians, and tonight we come to the last part of the last chapter, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we'll be looking tonight at uh, verses 10 through 23 as we finish the chapter. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's Word. Uh, We don't often get a chance to do this, but I'd like to do that tonight. Let's stand together and... You can follow along as I read, beginning in verse 10. We're going to read the entire text, then we'll go back and kind of dig into it. Paul writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it is good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid Again and again when I was in need, not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more, and I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts, plural, the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus, the brothers who are with me, and send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. That's a pretty cool statement. Those that belong to Caesar's household, people that Paul had won, soldiers that Paul had won to the Lord, and now they're part of the family of God. Verse 23, the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You know, if you could chart on a graph the spiritual lives of Christians, your life, my life, if we could somehow chart that on the graph, it would probably be a lot of up and down, wouldn't it? More like a roller coaster, right? Now, I love roller coasters. Anybody else like to ride roller coasters? I do. I love fast, turn it upside down, flip it up. I love roller coasters. But the roller coasters of life are not always very fun, are they? Now, now, you know, parts of it is good, and then parts of it not so fun. Sometimes we're on top of the mountain, and other times the mountain's on top of us, right? Sometimes it's a mountaintop experience, and sometimes we feel buried underneath it all. You know, the writer of Ecclesiastes knew what that was like because he wrote these words. He said, there's a time to weep, and there's a time to laugh, there's a time to mourn, and there's a time to dance. He understood the roller coaster of life, didn't he? He understood that there are times you'll be high and you'll be excited and it'll be great and there'll be times you'll be down and it'll be hard and you'll mourn. Some of you know uh, we've been mourning this week because um, a young man in our church, the same age as my son Jonathan, young man who used to be in our church, I should say, uh, was killed this week, Taylor Evans, uh, Jeff and Stephanie Evans, their son. Uh, in a car accident down in Gainesville, Georgia, uh, was ejected from his truck. Uh, truck, I think, was flipping, ejected him out, and, and he was killed. 
And so life is like that, isn't it? There are times of great mourning. There are times of great sadness. There are times of heartache. And then there's also times of great joy. There's times where, you know, life is good and, and there's a smile on your face and there's peace in your heart. And it would be nice if it could stay that way, but we understand that it doesn't stay. The Christian life is not an either-or experience. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, it's not a... Uh, it's not like, okay, if you, you're either a believer and life is good and problem-free, or you're an unbeliever and life is tough. That, that's not the way it works, and you know that. It's both and experience. Times will bring you great joy and times that will bring times that you just have to endure. And that's what I want you to think about. There are times that you enjoy, and there are times you have to endure. So Paul was writing in the midst of one of those times that he was enduring. If, uh, he was writing near the end of his life, and he had matured beyond the stage of just expecting everything to be good, and he found a way to live with a sense of stability in the midst of the up and ups and downs of life. So let's kind of dig into the text together. Uh, Paul says in verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord at last. There's that in the Lord again, by the way, that we talked about this morning. I rejoice greatly in the Lord at last that you have re renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Uh, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he says in verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Someone has said that all the world lives in two tents. We all live in two tents. We are either in the tent of, of content or discontent. It's kind of corny, but it makes a point, right? Discontent is kind of an ugly word. It portrays a person who's never satisfied. They're, they're, never, they're forever frustrated. They're constantly in turmoil. Life is never good. Discontent is kind of an ugly, bad word. Discontented people always are, are comparing themselves to someone else who has more money or has a prettier wife or has a better home or uh, better looking, more talented, has a better job, uh, has a better life in general. Discontented people are always looking at what they don't have. Contentment, on the other hand, has nothing to do with your surroundings or your possessions. Chuck Swindoll is a, a great preacher and you know you're very familiar with him he defines contentment this way he says it's the ability to be thankful and joyful no matter how much or how little we possess or what mountains or valleys we face some of the words that describe contentment would be words like sufficient or satisfied and Paul tells us how we can get to that point so let's look at the text I'm gonna get off my stool here I want to stand up tonight let's look at the text in verse 11 Paul says something in verse 11. I want your participation tonight. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Here's the first point if you, if you take some kind of notes tonight. According to Scripture, contentment is something you can learn. Not necessarily something you possess. Something that you learn. Would you say that when Paul was first saved on the road to Damascus, would you, would you think that Paul was immediately content? When he first got saved, I, I doubt it. When he first got saved, he was a pretty rugged man. When he first got saved, he, you know, he was a man who had a temper. He was a man who had a reputation. When he, when he first got saved, I doubt that he was all that we think of him to be. 
And in fact, Paul says now, later in life, as he writes this from a Roman prison cell, I've learned to be content. Remember what it was like to learn something really hard? Have you ever learned something? I'm not talking about spiritually now. Have you ever learned something really hard? Tell me, tell me something you learned that was really hard. What? Calculus. What did you say? <laughs> How to provide anesthesia without killing the patient. You're going to mess up my illustration, but that's okay. <laughs> Anybody learn a foreign language? You tried? Yeah. I remember in seminary learning Hebrew and learning Greek. Yeah, that's, no, no, no show, because I don't have any of it anymore. It's gone. I got a little bit, but not much. Yeah, I, how do you learn these kind of things? Study it. What would you say? Repetition. You've got to practice, right? You gotta, you're not going to get it right the first time. First time I studied Greek, I didn't get it right. First time I studied Hebrew, didn't get it right. First time she put somebody to sleep... <laughs> Somebody was standing beside her and said, no, that's not what you do here. Turn that lever back. Turn that lever back on. <laughs> You've got to learn things by trial and error. You don't always get it right. You have to learn by use and learn by practice. And I really believe that when Paul was on the Damascus Road, the first time he met Christ as his Lord and Savior, I don't think he automatically knew how to deal with the ups and downs of life. I don't think he automatically just, just perfectly dealt with the roller coaster of life. In fact, he tells us quite differently here. He says, I've learned to be content. He went through many difficult experiences in life in order to learn that lesson. In fact, look what he tells us. He said, um, verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And look what he says in verse 12. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I, I, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. I, I know what it is to be well-fed, Paul says. I, I know what it is to be hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I know what that's like, Paul said, because I've been through it. As I went through it, I learned how to deal with it. I learned to be content. Chris sent me a text this, this week, the longest text he's ever sent me, in, I think, since I've known him. But, but a really good text, by the way. Uh, I don't know if, if you are familiar with, ladies, some of you probably are familiar with She Reads Truth. You, you follow that online, She Reads Truth. Really, really good, if, ladies, if you're, if you're not getting online reading that, that'd be a good one for you to read. There's also one apparently called He Reads Truth. And uh, Chris told me this. At, he said, yeah, he's got this whole devotion on the whole book of Philippians. I said, dude, you wait to the last lesson? To tell me about that? <laughs> it would have been nice to have known about that earlier, but, uh, but, but anyway, I'm just going to... They tell us in school not to read anything long from the pulpit, but I'm not in the pulpit, so I'm going to read it to you because uh, this is really good stuff. He says, what is the correlation between contentment and circumstances? Why does Paul say he has learned to be content? Is contentment a natural behavior or one that has to be learned? I once joked about writing a book called How Pinterest Creatively Destroyed My Life. Some of you are on Pinterest, aren't you? Yeah. 
He said, now don't get me wrong, as an artist, I love the creativity and the tips for various building projects, but I have to be careful because it can also become a breeding ground for comparison, robbing me of my contentment. I, I, can I just add my own little thing? I bet Facebook is that for some of you too, isn't it? Get on Facebook and see where, well, where that family got to go, and they went there on vacation, and oh, look, at he got a new car, and, and all of a sudden it robs us of the contentment. In an initial pass, he says, through the verses in today's reading, we read that Paul has lived a diverse life and found contentment in the midst of it. However, this is not a typological study on the various types of needs you may encounter and how to survive them. When you stop and dig a little deeper, you find what makes contentment possible for Paul. Listen to this. What makes contentment possible for Paul is perspective. This passage does not say you will not be hungry. But it does teach that in your hunger, God is enough. It is not as if the presence of God acts as some kind of numbing agent that makes you immune to the pains of life. The gospel of Christ shows us that there is more to life than our circumstances. The riches of Christ Jesus surpass any earthly need or situation we may encounter. At the time of this letter, Paul has all his needs met, stating that he has more than enough. We also see Paul later in his final letter to Timothy speak about being in need and suffering. Paul's circumstances changed, but his perspective of, what, of who God is and of what Jesus did and of what life is about did not change. Now listen to this. That is much of our struggle today. It is easy for us to talk about the goodness of the Lord when we get the job or the promotion, the relationship, or whatever it is. But where is our praise when our stomachs rumble? And our muscles ache. Is our faith in Christ dependent on the condition of our circumstances? Author Larry Crabb once asked the question, this is such a good question, if this is really good. He said, would you be content with the presence of God if he never gave you, I mess that up. Would you be content with the presence of God if you never again had presence from God? You be content with the presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, of God if you never again got P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S from God. He said, I really wrestle with that. Would I love God and follow God if nothing good ever happened to me? Do I believe in my heart that God is enough? Sometimes I do. Many times I do. Sometimes not. I find myself wavering and distraught. Paul's message to the Philippians directs my eyes off of what I fear or think I need and back to the steadfastness of Christ. We are finite, he is infinite. We may hunger, he is still enough. We may hurt, he is still God. God supplies all we need to abide with him and to remain in him. My circumstances may change, but God never will. That's good. That's good. My circumstances may change, but God never will. We need to get to the point where even if our circumstances take a turn that we didn't expect, it's human to want to find contentment from the good things of life, but we need to get to the point where we recognize that what we really need is that intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that is not affected by the circumstances and so that brings me to verse 13 the second point I want you to see if you're taking notes is contentment is only found in Jesus he says in verse 13 and probably the most uh, uh, 
well-known verse in the book of Philippians because you've seen the professional athletes wear this verse everywhere. Uh, name one of the professional athletes or used to be an athlete who promoted this verse a lot. Who? Yeah, that's right. Tim Tebow was the one I was thinking of. You, you may have had another one in mind, but he used to wear it on the, those eye, the eye black when he was at the University of Florida, Philippians 4.13. And, uh, and, and I'm glad that he did that. I think that's wonderful that he did that. But that's all we know about the verse. We don't know it in the context of Scripture. The secret to Paul's contentment did not emerge from a self-help book. It wasn't a, a workshop on power, positive thinking. No, Paul learned that Christ really does make a difference. That Jesus, I love this, Jesus is not a spectator in your life. Jesus participates in your life. That's so important. Verse 13 implies not only is Christ sufficient in every situation, he is involved in every situation. He says, verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do, what's that word? I can do what? Everything. Through him who gives me strength. It's the same idea I was talking about this morning. In fact, this afternoon as I was reading this again, I thought, man, I should have put that verse in my message this morning because we were talking about in Christ, being in the Lord, being connected to the vine, the branch connected to the tree. And that's where the life and the strength flows from. And Paul says, listen, I've learned the secret to contentment. And the secret to contentment is not that my circumstances are good. The secret to contentment is this. I can do anything through Christ who gives me strength that I'm going to rely on Him more than I rely on my circumstances. Now listen, I'm no different than you. I like good circumstances. I like it when life is good. I like it when everything is going well. I like it when my family's healthy. I like it when there's money in the bank. I, I like it when I'm healthy and everything's good. I like good circumstances. There's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance and there's a time to cry and... There's a time to worship, and there's, there's just life is in seasons, and sometimes you're in a hard season, a dark season. Then sometimes the season turns to a good season. But in the midst of all of that, he says, here's what I found out. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Listen to Philip's translation of this. He says, I'm ready for anything through the strength of the one who lives within me. There are times when your strength is not enough. Can I get an Amen. There are times when your strength, this flat out, is not enough. But there's never a time when his strength is not enough. Paul recognized that Jesus would be the strength that he needed for every task, every trial, every tragedy. I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 3 for a moment. Uh, over to the, to the left, one book. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. We're going to look at some scriptures together. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Somebody read that out loud for me. Thank you. According to his power that is at work within us. Everything in life depends on hidden resources. Trees depend on hidden resources. Their roots go down deep into the soil. Uh, everything in life depends on hidden resources. And for the Christian, the hidden resources is the Christ who is living in us. 
let me show you another one. Second uh, uh, Corinthians chapter ten, verse. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter six, verse ten. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse ten. I'll read this one because it's it's part of a paragraph. We're just going to jump in at the end of it, but I think you'll still get the point. He says in verse 10, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Notice these circumstances, how he responds to it. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich. And then I love this, having nothing and yet possessing everything. What a beautiful phrase. Having nothing and yet possessing everything. Paul is saying you can take everything away from me, but at the same time there are some things you can never take away from me. Now, go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. And somebody read that one for me. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Godliness with contentment. There's that word. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Go to that one. You just, this one is such a great verse to summarize, and then, then we'll move on. Verse 5, he says this. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be, there's the word, be what? Content with what you have, because, here's the reason, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's that, that's that whole idea of a hidden resource. God said, listen. Or, or, or the writer of Hebrews said, listen, don't, don't get caught up in the love of money. Don't get caught up in, in money and what money can buy because you're going to lose your contentment there. Eventually, you'll lose some money or you'll lose something or you'll lose the deal and you're going to lose your contentment. But he said, no, instead, be content with what you have because God has promised you, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Ladies and gentlemen, there are some things more valuable than money. So, that's contentment can be learned. Now let's go back to Philippians chapter 4 and look at the rest of the chapter. And starting in verse 14 through the rest of the chapter, he talks about a lot about what we would call today Christian fellowship, the, the relationship that we have with one another and the relationship that he had with those people there in the church at Philippi. And so let's, let's read uh, verse 14. He says, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. It was good of you to share in my troubles. Uh, the New American Standard says, You've done well to share with me in my afflictions. In the midst of all of this, the church at Philippi came to the side of Paul and they shared in his struggles. Can I ask you a question? Do you have, have you ever experienced what Paul's talking about here where another Christian or a group of Christians have come to share with you in your struggles? I don't necessarily mean financially. But, but some people who cared about you came alongside you. They came into that hospital room. Uh, they, they came into, the, into that living room, but they came alongside you to share with you in your, in your struggles. They came alongside you to give you a shoulder to cry on. 
or they cared enough to send you a personal note, a, a card that says, I prayed for you today and shared scripture with you. Or maybe they cared enough to give you a, a phone call and encourage you. You know, I'm like you. I sometimes wonder, how does the lost world ever survive without the, su- su- the support system of the church? I just don't know how they do it. There is value in, in having a relationship with other believers, with other fellow Christians. And, and this is the relationship. Paul, remember now, is in prison. And Paul is in, is in prison. He said, listen, it was good of you to share in my struggles. I just want to say, that really meant a lot to me, that you shared in my struggles. It really helped me that you shared in my struggles. That, that even though you're there in Philippi and I'm here in Rome, it really encouraged me that you would come or you would send someone from where you are and you would come be with me and share in my struggles. Can I, can I just encourage you, maybe you ought to try that this week with somebody. Maybe God will give you an opportunity to share in somebody's struggles. It, it, it could just simply be that you send them a note. It could just be that you make that quick phone call. It could be that you go sit down in their living room and let them cry on your shoulder. But what you do has a huge impact on those who are going through hard times. So as we talk about, think about Christian fellowship, uh, that's one of the ways that you can help someone is by sharing in their struggles. Here's another way, by giving to people financially when they're in need. He says in verse 15, Moreover, As you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, that is, when you were brand new Christians, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. Paul says, you're the only church who who, kind of had the heart to give to me, who had this desire to share with me. The Bible uh, shows, as you read throughout the text in the book of Acts and other places, it shows that several churches supported Paul along the way at different times, but at this particular time, only that church did. And there's something special about Paul remembering as he's in the prison cell there in Rome, and he's remembering, not only did you share in my troubles, you shared with me financially. And he never forgot that. Some of you, I've I've told this story too, some of you are, are new and you don't know the story, but when somebody shares with you financially at a time when it's desperately needed, you never forget that, do you? Lisa and I were in seminary at Fort Worth. Uh, we had just gotten married in August. It was our, our first year as husband and wife. We got married in August. No, we, we got married in May. We moved to seminary in August. Yeah, I, I, when I say that, I thought, something doesn't sound right about that. What, what's wrong with this? We got married in May, and we moved to seminary in Fort Worth, Texas in August. We lived in Seminary Village, right across the street from the seminary. And uh, that's the same year her mom died. Her mom died right before we got married. Her mom died in January. We died of cancer. We got married in May. Then we moved to seminary in August in Fort Worth. We didn't have any money. We, we moved to Southwestern with $700 in the bank, and that was to pay for our, for our uh, first month's rent and everything else. That's all we had. Was we didn't have jobs, and we moved out there. She was the first one to get a job, if I remember correctly. I was, I was happy for that. Go work, honey. You, that's good. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we determined there was just no way we could go back home from Fort Worth, Texas to Tennessee or to Maryland, uh, 
we, we talked about should we go to one. We, we couldn't even afford to go to Tennessee, much less to Maryland. Didn't tell anybody about that. Somebody, one of our neighbors just asked us one day, y'all going home for Christmas? No, no, we're just going to stay here this year. It was our first, Christmas, first time away from home, and we, we were not going to be able to go back home for Christmas. We didn't make a big deal out of, out of it, didn't have a pity party, anything like that. We just knew we had to stay in Fort Worth that year. Jimmy Myers. Jimmy Myers knocked on my door one day. He said, can I talk to you? I need to talk to you privately. I thought, oh my goodness, what's, what's going on? We went down to the laundry room. And we sat down in the laundry room. I think I actually was sitting on top of a dryer. And we were just sitting there talking. And he says, I understand you guys are not going to get to go home for Christmas this year. I said, yeah, that's all right. That's fine. You know, we're newlyweds, and we'll enjoy Christmas here. And uh, well, that's, that's good. And he pulled out of his pocket two airline tickets. He said, we want you to go home for Christmas. We, I never found out who we was. Jimmy was part of it, but he wasn't the only one. He said, we have this little group called Jehovah Jireh. God provides. He said, we just want you to take this home. He said, he said, this year especially, Lisa needs to be home with her family for Christmas. And he put those airline tickets in my hand and he said, Jehovah Jireh. How many years has that been now? Probably 35 and in my mind, it's still as fresh today as it was back then. You never forget when somebody steps into your life unexpectedly and they meet a need you hadn't told them about. But somehow, God told them. Paul says much the same thing. He says in verse 15, Moreover, as you Philippians know in the early days, your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. And now, years, you know, sometime later, as Paul's sitting in this prison cell, one of the things he remembers is, you cared enough to send me financial assistance. And at a time when nobody else was. You cared enough to be Jehovah Jireh to me. And then another way that we kind of experience Christian fellowship and show Christian fellowship, not just in giving financially in times of need, but number two, showing you care when it's not expected. Showing someone you care when it's not expected. Look at verse 16. He says, For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once. For my needs. So even when Paul wasn't around, the church was still thinking about him. He said, even when I, I wasn't in Philippi, I was in Thessalonica. Now remember, I've told you this a lot of times before, but remember, this was before the internet. This was before Facebook. This was before a telephone or a cell phone. This was before transportation like we have with cars and all 
Paul says, listen, I wasn't in Philippi. I was in Thessalonica. And somehow you got word, and you not only did it once, you did it more, you did it again and again. You kept sending me finances when I really was in need. It was almost like Paul said, I don't know how in the world you did that. I don't know how in the world you knew that. But I want you to know, I've never forgotten that. Ladies and gentlemen, that's, that's what it means to be part of the church where God just simply meets needs and we do things for folks when they're not expecting it. You know, the old saying is, out of sight, out of mind. It must have warmed parts, Paul's heart to know that the church hadn't forgotten him when he was out of sight. They cared. I remember when I was in college, I, I didn't mean to tell all these stories about money but for me, but... Uh, I just I can't forget these things. I was in college at Carson Newman. It used to be Carson Newman College back then. That's where I met my wife, Lisa. And uh, I'd go to the mailbox pretty often because uh, every once in a while there would be a, an envelope in my mailbox and there would be a $20 bill in it and there would be a note and I wrote it down what the note used to say. Most of the time it was simply short and simple and the note was simply this. Dear Keith, thought you might need this love mom now I was excited for two reasons I was excited because now I got some money to take lease out you know and I was also excited for another reason she was thinking about me and she cared now you know twenty dollars is still a lot of money but back in 1978 1979 that was a, a little bit, you know, that was kind of a significant thing, $20 back then. And especially for my family, because I know, I know they didn't have it most of the time. They didn't even have an extra $20, but somehow she came up with it. She sent it to me. And usually it was just about every week. One of the greatest things in the world is when somebody shows you that they care and you're not expecting it. That is Christian fellowship. When somebody shows you that they care and you're not expecting it. Maybe you can do that for somebody this week. Well, let's see what else he says in verse 17. He says uh, something very interesting here. He says, not that I'm looking for a gift, Paul says, I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not hunting for more money. I'm not asking you, you know, for, for a gift card or anything like that. I'm not looking for a gift, but I am looking for something. I, I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. Although Paul appreciated the gift from the church of Philippi, his main joy was the reward the church was going to receive as he thought about God's really going to bless you folks. For what you've done. Living Bible translates it this way. But though I appreciate your gifts. What make me happiest is the well earned reward you will have because of your kindness. Paul knew that no good deed goes unnoticed by the Lord. Let me show you this in scripture. Get your Bibles ready. You ready? Bible drill time. I want to show you that, that God remembers and God rewards our smallest deeds. Mark chapter 9 verse 41. Somebody read that quickly. Mark chapter 9 verse 41. Yeah, uh, he said, listen, if somebody just gives you a cup of water in my name, 
they're going to get rewarded. God notices even the small things that we do for people. Others may not know about it. Others may not notice. But the Almighty God takes note, and He's going to reward you. Let me show you another. Bible drill time. Ready, set, go. Luke 6.35. Luke 6.35. Yeah. He says, if you love your enemies, God's going to notice that. He's going to reward you for it. Let me show you another. Hebrews 6.10. Hebrews 6.10. Yeah. God will not forget what you have done. To help his people. So we know that our, when we do something for others, we will experience a personal reward, but also we'll be pleasing to God. Look what he says in verse 18. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied. And not that I have re- uh, now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are, look how Paul describes the gifts the Philippians, had, uh, the church at Philippi had sent. He said they are a fragrant offering an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Look at those three phrases very carefully. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. He uses the language of the Old Testament to say, listen, this is like a sacrifice in the days of the Old Testament. This is something that is pleasing to God. It's acceptable to God. It has the odor, a sweet smell of odor and aroma to the Lord. So when we do something for others, he's simply saying this, God is pleased. When you help somebody else, God is pleased. It's a sweet odor to him to see his children helping others. And then he says in verse 19, again, one of those very famous verses in the book of Philippians. He says, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. My God will meet all of your needs. Paul is simply saying this, you met my need? Now God's going to meet your needs because of what you've done. You met one need that I had, but God will meet all of your needs, Paul said. Isn't that good? You you, you met my need one time, God's going to meet all of your needs. You gave out of your poverty to me, God's going to give out of his riches to you. My God will meet all of your needs in Christ Jesus. And there's that phrase again, isn't it? Do you notice it in verse 19? According to his riches in Christ Jesus. That phrase is all through the New Testament, especially the writings of Paul. Now, could I just, before we close, could I remind you, God's not promised to supply all of your greeds. But when we're giving in Christian fellowship and trusting him, he has promised to supply all of your needs. Hudson Taylor often said, when God's work is done in God's way, For God's glory, it will not lack God's supply. That's a great statement. Church, we need to hear this. When God's work is done in God's way, for God's glory, it will not lack God's supply. For my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Then he says, as we close, verse 20, 
To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And here's where you know Paul's a preacher because he didn't stop. That's a good stopping point right there, Paul. Oh, by the way, <laughs> greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings. And I love this. I, I read it a moment ago. Especially those who belong to Caesar's household. I really believe he's talking about the soldiers that he won to the Lord while he was imprisoned in Rome. Especially those of Caesar's household. We, you have some brothers and sisters in Caesar's household. Then he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for the book of Philippians. And I know we've only scratched the surface of really all that is there. But it has been so encouraging to walk through these pages and walk through these chapters and to encounter things that are just as real today as they were the day Paul wrote them in that Roman prison cell. We are grateful for the reality of your word, the, the reality that your word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And your word confronts us and convicts us and comforts us. Father, we're thankful for the Holy Spirit that teaches us this holy word. And now may we live it. May we not simply leave here tonight and this week remember that we studied the book of Philippians, but may we find something to live from the book of Philippians. May we do it for your glory. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.